Well, I just want to uh, make it really clear that we are excited about how you will participate. There is a faithful expectancy. When it comes to Celebration Sunday, I'm going to talk a little bit more about where I believe is God is calling us as a church family and a body uh, and some of the things he's been sharing with me around that. Um, I also want to take a moment just to share with you that as we kind of end this year, uh, we're grateful for people who are responding. And as we end in June 30th, and we want to end it well so we can start strong. So that's something that um, I just want to say thanks for your prayer and, and participation in that. I want to give you one more thing to think about. And this is not in our coming budget. This would be over and above if God would be leading you to give over and above your own regular tithing. The church is not going to take um, any additional debt in trying to do this, but I really believe the leadership board thought as well that we should bring this to the congregation and share it with what God has been leading and doing. Some of you are aware that we have a yellow house out here, kind of on the corner over here on the north side. I think it's 6th Street it runs on. And we have had um, a refugee family, um, basically not a refugee, they were an asylum-seeking family, which meant they left Nigeria because um, Kazim, who was to be, imam, to be an imam, came to faith in Christ in a remarkable way. And as a result of that, because the imam moves through the family, he was under persecution, under the threat of death, so was his family. So we hosted him here, and God did a marvelous work. He's um, teaching at the U of M. His wife has started a business. They lived in that house, and they eventually were able to, just a few Sundays back, some of you remember, were able to kind of um, give them a blessing as they went into another home. Well, about three to f- about four years ago, um, some investors uh, purchased a blue house in thinking that this might be a property that would be really helpful for our church. And the blue house is right next to that yellow house. And these investors bought it, fixed it up for about um, their total cost of $400,000. We're holding it for a few years. They finally came to the point, they thought, this is the time that um, either um, the church responds and we do something about it. And in, in the past, we didn't feel like it was time to do this, but we're just going to lay this out here to you. They are willing to, with what they put into it, sell it to us for $400,000. That property is right next to the church. Um, they will probably sell it here. They'll list it in the, June, the first week or second week of June for north of $500,000. And we began to pray about it and said, God, what is it that you might be calling us to do? And one of the things that we have had a team of people, and if you want to be a part of that, have been praying about it and thinking about it, is how can we step into this whole refugee crisis in the housing that is so difficult? Is there something we can do potentially with a family like Ukraine or someone who might be coming in our direction? And so I thought we needed to bring it before you. If people don't respond, um, we'll just kind of let that pass. Um, but I think it's an opportunity for us that we, you know, just didn't imagine necessarily having with all the things coming together. So they have said they would um, be willing to give it to the church for that. We're not going to take that to get a mortgage. It won't be in our budget already. Of the $400,000, we have $125,000 committed. And all I want to say is if that's something you want to be a part of, Please pray about it. You can get a hold of me. You can get a hold of Carrie Boyce. You can get a hold of Luke, who you saw here. Or you can get a hold of um, Mike Brinkman. And if God is prompting you in any way to be a part of that, we would love to know that. And again, it's just if this is the Lord's will, 
I kind of let it go. I'll, I'll be honest, 14 years ago when I came here, I would park in that yellow parking right on the street by that yellow house, and I would always pull into the driveway of that blue house. And I did this for about a year and a half, and I would pray and say, God, I claim this for you. That's the honest truth. I have no idea, though, if that's just me, right, or if it's God. And, and so I just leave it to you in, in that way. Okay, I want you to think for a second. If you could ask for anything, what would it be right now? If you asked for anything, what would it be? What do you want most? Some people are already answering. If you say it out loud, you may get it. No, I'm just kidding. I asked you this question because Solomon was given that opportunity. Solomon, we've been studying the book of Proverbs. He was given this opportunity to come before the Lord and ask him for anything. In fact, at one point, God says, what do you want? Ask and I will give it to you. And so we're told in 2 Chronicles chapter 1 that there in front of the tabernacle, verse 6, Solomon went up to the bronze altar in the Lord's presence and sacrificed 1,000 burnt offerings on it. Now, what I think is interesting is Solomon was kind of beginning his career. So some of you think about it. What if you could ask for anything as you started out your career? That night, God appeared to Solomon and said, what do you want? Ask and it will be given you. Solomon replied to God, give me the wisdom and knowledge to lead your people Israel properly. For who could possibly govern this great people of yours? And then God said to Solomon, because of your greatest desires to help your people, and you did not ask for wealth and riches and fame or even death of your enemies or a long life, but rather you asked for wisdom and knowledge to properly govern my people, I will certainly give you the wisdom and knowledge you requested. And now think like a game show. And on top of that, this is what God does. And even more than that, behind curtain, no. God says, I will give you, in fact, beyond that, wealth Riches and fame such as no other king has had before you or will ever have in the future. And Solomon went on to write this Old Testament book that we're looking at, Proverbs. And uh, in that book of Proverbs, it's all about wisdom, those first nine chapters. It starts out in chapter one, and wisdom is found in God, it tells us. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. The whole foundation is, if you want wisdom, you need to live in an interactive personal relationship with God. And I've been saying this week after week. Interactive means the things you interact with, you actually know best. Because some of you have children and you interact with them, you know them better than I would, right? You interact with them on a regular basis. You, in your work situation, you interact with the things that you work with. You probably know that far better than anyone else. If you choose, says Proverbs 1, to interact with God on a regular basis, as you seek his word and seek to live in relationship with him on a daily, moment-to-moment basis, he will give you wisdom. Proverbs 2 goes on and says, wisdom, if you want it, is given by God. For the Lord grants wisdom. Proverbs 3 talks about the benefits. Proverbs 4, the supremacy of wisdom. Proverbs 5, when Bruce spoke that one, he talked about being captivated by nothing else but wisdom. Proverbs 6 gives examples of wisdom. I spoke last week on Proverbs 7, and it's this idea to be 
careful because you could be tempted away from wisdom. And then Proverbs 8, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read this and ask you to stand as we read the words of the Lord. Listen as wisdom calls out. Hear as understanding raises her voice. On the hilltop along the road, she takes her stand at the crossroads. By the gates at the entrance to the town. On the road leading in, she cries aloud. I call to you, to all of you. Everyone in this place and everyone online. I raise my voice to all people. It does not matter what you've done or where you've been or who you are. Isn't it amazing? The God who created all this says he wants to give you wisdom. Right where you're at, no matter what's going on, he wants to give you wisdom. He is not one who shows favorites. So we're going to take a moment this morning. Please stand for just a second and I'll pray. But we're going to stop and pause and look at Proverbs 8 and say, God, there is a time right now where we need your wisdom in this world, in our lives, like we haven't before. I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer. Father, we're asking that you would give us, as people, wisdom. Give us the wisdom of Jesus as we live in this world all around us. We humble ourselves and invite you to speak this morning in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus lived with wisdom. And so one of the things I want us to do for this break, every once in a while, I'll come to the worship team and to our leadership board others and say, you know, I was going to do chapter 8. I'm going to do this next week, but what I want to do is stop and talk about a very important thing that we need to be thinking about, and that is this. How will we as a church posture ourselves within our culture today? What does that look like? Because we need wisdom. What does it look like for us to live like Jesus did? Jesus was captivated by wisdom, and he captured the hearts of all kinds of people with wisdom. He actually baffled the self-righteous religious groups of people who a lot of times had things right, but they did so many things wrong in their approach to the world about them. And so as you kind of think about this message, what I want us to do is kind of look at Jesus. And I want to talk about the, the world that we're in, specifically even some of the moral issues we're in. One of them, and I'll refer to from time to time, is this whole situation of Roe versus Wade and the whole idea of abortion. And what does that look like? How are we as people like Jesus to live with wisdom in the midst of decisions like that? And this won't be the first. This just goes to state, so it'll be appealed. And, and, and there'll be all kinds of, not just about abortion, all kinds of other issues, especially as we are today living in a post-Christian world. We have the choice to either fight and get angry, or we have the choice to be like Jesus, who stood and opposed the self-righteous, and yet stood in truth and welcomed those who were broken and hurting. In fact, they flocked to him because of his wisdom. And they were people who hungered to know about him. Jesus came to a very similar kind of post-Christian world. I would call it a post-Old Testament kind of world. For hundreds of years, they were now influenced by Greek thought, 
They had now had Rome come through and Rome began to influence the way they were. And so as a people, they were in many ways, Jesus was coming to a post-Old Testament kind of culture. And he stood with wisdom It's the posture that I think is important. And as I was preparing this and thinking through this, one of the things I really wanted to make sure is that we um, recognize that we live in this kind of world and that we have this great opportunity as we move to an identity, as we have an identity calling ourselves Westgate Church, as we come into, who will we be as a people? What will it look like? Do I have your attention? Yeah, I think so. I think of people like this. And I want you to know, these are three talking points. My prayer is this will be a dialogue and discussion. That we will actually be the kind of people that model to the world what is not often seen. Which is the opportunity to listen to one another and, 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 and go to the word of God like the Bereans did and say, what does God have to say on this? And these are the three talking points. I'll start with the first one. And you'll note this, that the wisdom of Jesus enters our world and into his cultural time period in a very important way. You go to the book of John, where John starts out very deep and theological. His first chapter, as he goes through it, you come to one verse and it says, Jesus came full of grace and truth, and so must we. In fact, if you read John chapter 1, verse 14, he kind of sums it up at one point. He says, the word became flesh and lived for a while among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And you need to underline these words. It's something you need to pray will become a part of who we are and who you are, full of grace and truth. What's really important when you listen to that, there was, there's no mistake in, in the inspiration of this authoritative word here. He does not say truth and grace. He says grace as a sense of order. It's, it's a, a important order that grace comes before truth. If you look at the life of Jesus, you will see it again. Grace was allowed, was what allowed for Jesus to actually speak into hearts of people, people who felt shame, who had been, whether it be, whatever the issue might be, whether it's addictions, whether it's adultery, whether it's a, an abortion, whether it's anything. People who had these kind of things in life where they felt shame felt totally loved in the presence of God. I said it last week in this thing on temptation. Shame wants us to hide, but somehow Jesus came before people in a way that he was able to state grace into their hearts and lives and then speak truth. It's always grace and it's always then followed by truth that transforms the heart. The law, you have to understand when Jesus came, the law... And it is to this day, even the laws of our government are about coercive power. The law is the power that comes from the outside to conform behavior, to keep behavior in line. The whole purpose of the gospel was to do something different. It was so that he could implant the law in your heart. The heart would be transformed by the knowledge of the grace of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you so that your heart would experience his love so that you would be filled with his love. And in that love, there is no law because your heart now expresses every law through love. And so you have this picture. 
And, and, and what I want you to recognize for a second, this should lead us to a number of questions. Like I said, these are talking points. These are questions. There are some questions I want to ask you to think about. How do you speak what you believe is true, and yet do you do this with compassion, and do you do this with humility and grace? I had a young couple, we have a number of these 20-somethings in our church, and I had a young couple come to me this week, made a time, I was just so thrilled they came, wanted to just hear, where are we at as a church as we kind of go through this process and we talk about things like abortion or other moral issues that will come up. And they sat down with me and they just shared and, and we were talking and they were saying that, you know, on social media, everybody has an opinion, they live in an age, there everything is relative with regard to truth. How do you live with this world in this way? And I just shared with them, I came from a church background where, and many do, of an evangelical church that was more legalistic and it was all about the law and conforming behavior. It was a little bit judgmental and self-righteous and, and those kind of things. And they said, you know, we thought about this some. We thought maybe some of this is a generational thing that happens somewhat in the church. And then as we talked a little bit further, they kind of came up with this and we agreed that some people are just, anybody here is more just a truth teller, Right? I don't care how it makes you feel. I'm telling you the truth. And then there's other people on the other side who go, oh man, I love you. I really care about you. But maybe someday I'll tell you the truth. How do we do this? Like Jesus. How do you hold the tension between building a platform through grace and speaking boldly truth? Another important question is this. How do you speak truth in a culture that sees issues that are either right or left or my way, which is usually the right way, and your way, the wrong way, right? How, how do you speak in a culture where issues are brought up that are, that are not simple, but are very nuanced and complex? How do you speak about those things in a deep and meaningful way. How do you speak to what I would call an ever-increasing tribalistic kind of culture? By that I mean tribes where if you agree with me, then I'll be in your tribe, and then we're against this tribe, and where it's just a culture that's polarized and deeply divided and, and so quickly turns to hate and to shouting and to rage. I was um, writing this and thinking about it, and as I was writing it, I, I remembered a um, thing I had read in Christianity Today. Because what I find is that culture we kind of think is out here has just invaded the church. And I, it just came to mind, I was reading this, and it was a Barna study. They began it in 2017 in January, and they began to just ask the state of the pastor. It was the question of what's the pastor's well-being, and they went through this poll and study and they they were basically asking this question have you seriously as a pastor thought about quitting the ministry this year well they took it it, this last january of 2021 and they were kind of amazed because the numbers were continuing to grow and in january of 2021 it was not 29 percent they decided they would take it again in eight months i don't know why but they took it in eight months So in October of 2021, it had actually grown another nine points. There are now 38% of pastors who are seriously quitting, seriously thinking of quitting the ministry. And, 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 and I thought, well, that's interesting. Two out of five pastors. And then 
Here's the quote from the article. Here's that they say. One of the more alarming findings is that 46% of pastors under the age of 45, one out of two, are considering quitting full-time ministry. They go on to say keeping the right younger leaders encouraged and in their ministry roles will be crucial to the next decade of congregational vitality in the U.S., Lifeway search research came out, and and one of the guys, Ed Stetzer, who is really the uh, the, the leading person at the um, Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College, who also works with Lifeway, have basically said in 20 years, if this doesn't change, there will be a, a, a large shortage of pastors within churches. Why am I bringing this up? I have talked to more friends. I have talked to more people who also have seriously considered quitting ministry because they have had fights that have devastated their churches between mass and no mass, vaccine or no vaccine. Even the issues of abortion, there's, there, where there are nuances and, and, and people are just, they, they just take these positions and they don't listen and there's no dialogue and it's coming to, to, to bear. I don't say that for poor me. I think about quitting every day. (laughs) Not with you. No, um, I've told you, God called me when I stepped off these steps one time some 14 and a half years ago before I became the pastor, and I will leave the moment God, the leadership board, the church says it's time to go. I'm out of here. Because it's God's deal, not mine. I just want to be faithful. But I say all that because Jesus came full of grace and truth. We have to learn within our church and within our culture to dialogue and, and come together on this. Now, I will say, I'm, if you're in a situation, you go, this church is so antithetical to who I am. I, there's got to be room for that. So I'm not trying to shame anyone. But I, I really don't want people... Kind of saying, if you don't agree with this, then there's a, this kind of veiled threat to control. That's just not right. Right? Honest, loving talk, perfect. We should do it. That's the first. Jesus then is another thing I want to talk about is taught people how to think and so must we. That's the second talking point. Jesus was constantly teaching people to think below the the issue, to get beyond it. The word of God says an interesting thing. Saying. It says God hates divorce, right? But he gave permission because of the hard-heartedness of people. I say that because Jesus is constantly saying, I want you to think and process. People would ask him questions, and like a really good rabbi, rabbis would have this customary way of teaching people. They would ask them a question back. You know how frustrating that is, right? And so Jesus would say to people, so what do you think? Who do you say? Who who do you say that I am? Why are you so afraid? Tell me, why did you doubt? Really, really, you want healing, but do you really want to get well? It's constantly driving people to think. Here's an interesting thing. There was a time when an expert in the law came to Jesus uh, with this question. He says, Rabbi, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And listen to Jesus' response in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. He replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The guy goes, that's a good answer. 
He liked it. Do you know there's something that he was quoting from the Old Testament? He's actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5. Do you know there's something missing here or different? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus purposely, intentionally adds mind as a part of making it very clear that he wants people who are willing to think deeply about nuanced and about complex issues. And so Jesus says, I want you to use your mind. I'm going to kind of share something. I was writing my journal, and then as I was sitting here, I thought, well, I'm supposed to share this. Do you know that um, when it comes to stuff like this, I feel dumb? When it comes to just, you know, I I don't think of myself at all as being smart, and you probably don't either, but it doesn't matter. (laughs) I had an older brother who was incredibly smart. I mean, he reads like a book a day. He was two years older. Something happens in a relationship when you're two years younger than a smart brother who's really smart. You kind of go, I'm just not smart. I'm kind of dumb. So I didn't really do a lot of work until my 11th grade year in high school. And then I thought, I got to think a little bit or do something. And I, I tried. Went through college. Went to Wheaton. And I, first day, I sit with at a table at this introduction thing. And four of them were merit scholars. I didn't even know what a merit scholar was. And I'm going, I feel stupid. And it was about, um, it's been a progressive thing, but it's, it's been this thing where God has been just challenging me all the time. Do not be a lazy thinker. You guys, Jesus commanded what the Father said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, specifically with your mind and specifically with issues that are going to be before us in our culture that are tied to some incredibly complex and and potentially very harmful people things and so as we continue to read this I, and, and continue to think about it um, I just I challenge us with wisdom Jesus called people to move away from taking sides and force them to think deeply about those nuanced issues and that doesn't mean that you don't take an issue think through deeply and, and as you can then vote according to what your conscious and the word of God has to say we're called to do that's a privilege we have so I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, in the midst of his culture, when he come across these things, he was very careful on how he also answered them. So when it came to one of the number one issues of his day was taxes. Should we pay them to Rome and to Caesar? And, and they, they were coming to him to trap him. They wanted him to say and agree with him around this issue, that you shouldn't have Rome here. And so what does Jesus do? He says, he gets a coin, holds up the coin, they look at the coin, he says, whose image is on this? And, and they go, Caesar. He goes, yep, you're right. There is a domain, d- domain of government that where government has a, a rule and, and has a place in your life. And to that place, you give due. And then he said, what image is on your heart? Then Get rid of the coin for a second. What's the image on your heart? And everyone goes, Maggio Dei. It's God, his very image. And he says, yeah, give him your all. And he so, with wisdom, answers this question, and they walk away. You know, I'm sure they're going, yeah, I don't know. And they walk away to the next one. This time, it's another big issue, a real big issue in, in the life of, of Israel. And it was around this time, around adultery and divorce. 
and you have this issue of, of, of is there any exceptions? Can you do it? There's, a, there's two rabbinic schools that are very prominent, one called Hillel and one called Shammai. And, and you have this picture of these people who have been fighting for years, and, and who wants to be right, right? And so they trap Jesus once again. They do something just horrible. They, they trap and find a woman, whether they make this happen or not, who is caught in adultery, drag her out into the middle to his feet, and they put him there. And the whole reason is to get him to say adultery is wrong, divorce, and then whatever questions would follow on that, to move into that. And they drag her. And what does Jesus do? In a very, you know, you kind of go, that's an easy answer. He doesn't answer them. He says this. Any of you who are without sin, go ahead and drop the first stone, right? Throw it. There's one person who could have thrown a stone there. You know who it was? Jesus. He's the only one who's sinless. And he didn't. And then he gets on the crown. And and he starts writing in the sand. And people, scholars say, what is he writing? Here's my guess, and here's what some often say, is he probably knew what was in their hearts, and he started writing exactly the sin in their hearts. So guy's looking and going, ooh, that's me. Drops the stone. Next guy drops the stone. Eventually, everyone, you know what I got a feeling is, after about four of them, they're going, I'm getting out of here, I don't want my sin exposed. They all drop stones. Jesus reaches over to her, Picks her up, puts his arms around her, and he does not say, quit, quit um, committing adultery. He says something so much more profound. He looks at her heart and he says, I want you to go and sin no more. And in that phrase, he was saying this. Don't try and find what you're looking for in your heart in the arms of another person. You'll never find it. It's not about all the shame that comes with that word that they wanted him to say. He addressed the deepest need. Folks, we have to address the deepest need. And Jesus was willing to do that. And so when you think about that, We're called to think deeply. So here's the responsibility of the church, is to think biblically and to act like Christ. So a couple of things the church is not called to do. The church has a domain. This is going to be way too much. I'd have to do a whole other story, a whole other series on this. That, that there are in this, Jesus unhooked in that thing on taxes and the way that he lived and what happened with Christianity. He unhooked religion from political power. He separated those and said political power has a coercive ability to protect and should. And the church has a moral power to speak into and influence the government. In Nazi Germany, that failed. But how we do it's so important. Here's a couple of things the church is not called to do. The church is not in the business of telling people how to vote or who to vote for. The church points out the moral issues as well as the complex uh, complexity around those issues. When we step out of our domain and try and step into this domain, we lose our moral authority. 
The church is not in the business, secondly, of writing public policy and laws. We don't know enough to actually do all that work, and we have given that, and God has to a domain, but we speak into it, and we seek to influence it. And in our culture, compared to many others, we have the ability to voice ourselves and to do so in love, with grace, and to be able to say what we believe is true and actually vote for what we believe is true. That's a gift. Let me just share with you the complexity of, of this issue, just of abortion. Even among pro-lifers, there's differences of how the law would be written. For, for, for instance, I just, I've been just reading. Uh, Tom Askell, who is a pastor and a leading candidate for the president of the Southern Baptist Conference, is calling for, I mean, he's a leading candidate, the criminalization of a mother who aborts. He is part of a growing group of abortion abolitionists who reject the idea that abortion should be allowed if a mother's life is endangered, if a young, young child is raped, or if incest occurs. So how does the evangelical church come around writing these kind of laws? Askell says this, and this just shocks me. There is little difference between a woman who chooses to end her pregnancy and a hitman. Both pay someone to end a human life. So both should be facing criminal charges. And I go, where's the guy in this? Usually takes two. It is clear that writing laws are complex and nuanced even for the pro-lifer. We are called to state clearly what the Bible says about issues that are often complex and nuanced, and we are called, I am called as your shepherd, to think through them biblically, and you are too. The church is called to speak into moral issues. There is three different issues in this one alone. With regard to abortion, there's the issue of sanctity of life. The Bible is very clear. All life is sacred. Every life taken, whatever age that life may be, young, prenatal, old, demented, every life grieves the heart of God. And these commands are found throughout the Bible and beginning in Genesis when you have the very first Cain and Abel killing. There's another issue here that's incredibly important that I think in some ways has gotten us here. And that's what I call the issue of, of, of the dignity of a woman. I mean, it's only been in recent history that, that there has been a call for some kind of equality. If a woman is doing a work, that she should be paid the same as the, the man. It's only been recent that men are actually being charged for rape rather than the woman being blamed for it. I, I, you've got to just say this very clearly. In this whole issue, there is this whole idea of what do we do and how do you preserve the dignity of a woman? And I'm not taken away from the issue, but these are two moral issues that have to be dealt with. And when they're not said clearly, I just think they divide. And there's a third issue. It's human sexuality. Right? We're pretty clear in the word of God that sex is something that happens within a marriage, right? So if, if it happens outside... You have to ask yourself, should we be making a law 
that says if there's any sex ever found outside of marriage, that should then call for criminality, possibly because of... I mean, that sounds ridiculous, but seriously, one of the problems that can you can get into, and in this is a difficult thing, is we at one point said, hey, um, uh, there was a, a, a huge moral issue around drunkenness, so uh, as the church and others got together, there was a call for a law to be written, and it was called prohibition. Now, was that a good thing to stop drunkenness? Yes. Was the law possibly a good law? You know what? Laws can only coerce behavior. It cannot change hearts. We've partnered with a ministry called New Life Family Services for a very reason, because there is a group of people that we believe get it as they stand clearly for the sanctity of life, but they also stand for the issues that women face when they're abandoned by a man. There are so many other complex issues around it. And, and, and I'll just share with you, I'm kind of trying to do this in love, but in preparation for this, Bruce put together a learning circle with New Family Life Services, and we offered it on a Wednesday night. Maybe we didn't make it clear, but four or five people showed up. Because we wanted to work through, here, let's talk about this in complexities. We're going to probably have them come back, and I expect 30 to 40. No, I'm just kidding. And the third thing, I know it's 11, but I feel this is important. We're going to go to 12. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Jesus pointed everything to the heart, and so must we. If you just look at the teaching of Jesus, it was always, his word was said with compassion. The appeal to the heart, folks, is always more demanding than the demand of the law. So that Jesus would stand in Matthew 5.21 and talk about murder. He said, you have heard it said, our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I'm going to tell you something more, those who are standing here. That it's not just about the people who are murdered and the shame they feel. I want you to know that if you have hate in your heart and there's anger in your heart, guess what? You've committed murder. He always kind of went to the heart. He always went against any kind of self-righteousness. And I'm not saying that everyone who holds to his position over here with regard to moral truth of what the word of God has to say is in that place. But we have to watch ourselves. Because one of the reasons that Jesus didn't immediately talk about taxes being wrong or talk about a woman and, and, and commit adultery is because he knew that identification with that would, would actually cause people to turn in many ways and see them as no different. He would be no different. Than that kind of pride. So that Jesus says, you have heard it said about adultery. He said, you know what, you must not commit adultery. But I say to anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The law says don't, you know, don't commit adultery. There's the law, conforms behavior that it can actually see and do. But Jesus ups the ante and says, hey, you know what, I can see in your heart. I think if Jesus was standard, he'd say, yep. You've heard it said, all, all life is sacred. And he would just quote somewhere on that, and then he would come and he'd say, guess what? Here's the reality. What about the person? What about, what about the, the words that you use that mortally wound someone's heart and life? Because Proverbs tells us that the life and death is in the tongue. What about that? 
And he's, he has this uncanny ability to kind of always drive the heart so that we approach these issues with incredible humility, which should force us to grace so that we can be a church that says, I don't care what you've done, where you've been. Everyone is welcome here. Nobody's perfect. And we know that with God, anything is possible. And we believe that. So I'm just going to conclude with these statements. Thanks for coming up and getting me off the stage here. Okay, (laughs) They love you for it. We're called to live in the tension of grace and truth. And we'll never get away from it. Do you daily give that thought a sense of um, presence in your life? Do you tend towards grace? Do you tend towards truth? Where do you need to grow? We're called to promote the gospel that it's the power of God to transform a person's heart. Folks, I said it years ago and other issues that have come up. The gospel is about changing lives. The law is about what? Conforming behavior. We're here to change lives, not just to change laws. The deepest issue is the gospel. And we are going to present the gospel as clearly as possible. We are sinners who are in need of grace. And it is because of the cross and only our trust, even that faith is something God gives us is what changes your heart and changes my heart and will change anyone's heart. We're called to be light and salt into the world. Some of people here are going to be called to some of these moral issues as we face them in the years to come. Even this one coming, praise God, but do it with grace and truth. And recognize everyone is called by God to different places. And we're called to live with a wisdom that leads to understanding and relationship. I'm going to speak on this, I think, maybe soon. But just this idea, think about it. Why are Christian people so mean to each other? Think about it. It's because we don't want to be righteous, living a humble, gracious life, because it usually means we want to be right. And you know that is not a great commandment for relationship. How many find that to be really helpful in your marriage relationship? Do you think it's going to work anymore in the world? I have found that in the issues come up in our relationship, the best approach is to always say my wife's right. No, I'm just kidding. The best approach is for us to truly hear what our mind is making up about the issue, then to begin to think about what's the feeling, not feel like, but the actual feeling, I feel lonely, not feel abandoned, that's putting it off here, I feel lonely, I feel sad, whatever it is, and then move to what is the need. What do you, what do you, what do you need? Could be respect, could be this, and then you kind of say, how do we meet that together? I don't know how in the world we'll change lives of people if we don't approach it in this way. Here in the church and outside the church. And if you want to walk that way with us as a body, we want to have a platform to the world that transforms hearts and yet lives both in grace and truth. I'm, I'm done. 
Jesus, thank you that you are so full of truth that as you call us into truth, we line up more and more with the reality the way you've made it. And the greatest reality that we're to head towards is to become like you. It's not about being right. It's just about being filled with grace and truth so that hearts can be reconciled to our Father in heaven. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.